Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but I'm also director of the centre. And today I am joined by a good friend of the centre who is also one of our tutors on our Novel in the Year course, Claire O'Brien, who is an author as well as a creative writing teacher. So Claire, do you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself? Okay, yes. So um, I've been writing for a long time, uh, probably about 30 years. So I feel almost qualified to say I have a writing life. (laughs) And um, uh, my, um, I first published uh, for children in um, 1996. I had a couple of small um, titles published and then absolutely nothing for 13 years. But I kept writing and doing the day job and living my life. And um, then I went off and did uh, a master's in creative writing in Lancaster, up near the wonderful Lake District. And um, I, at that time, was not writing for children. I was actually working on a crime novel, um, which uh, did get me an agent, but um, that didn't work out. We didn't get that one placed. And it was another seven years before I um, realised that actually with a background in primary school teaching and having read thousands of children's books, really I was best placed to write for children. So I went back to that and uh, it was the Scooby um, Undiscovered Voices anthology that picked up my um, uh, the opening for my Cordelia Cod novels, which are funny novels about uh, a, a girl just starting secondary school so she's 11 12 13 in the novels and having all the issues and a dysfunctional family um, and um, uh, parents who split up and she has to get them back together again and her 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 place she goes to is vintage films and costumes she wants to be a costume designer and I have a great love of fabrics and sewing and costumes, so I had fun with that. So uh, that was picked up by Orchard, who are part of Hachette, and there are three Cordelia Cod novels. And then since then, I've had a range of uh, commissions for funny stories, with mostly with educational publishers, and uh, reworkings of traditional stories and fairy tales. Um, I think probably my favourite of those was my reworking of Pinocchio, which got me interested in reworking fairy tales. 
And that's most, those are mostly the kind of things I do now are uh, commissions for uh, educational publishers, um, anywhere from five years to up to um, older teens, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle really. Yeah, so this is a, an important part of the publishing world that people may not be familiar with, but certainly it provides the bread and butter to a lot of writer for writers for younger children getting into the educational market. And what we wanted to talk about today as a, as a theme, which has wider application, is the reworking of fairy tales. And just before we go there, um, listening to you talk, Claire, it seems as though there's some fairy tale tropes in your story, particularly the thing about the long wait. The long wait for success, which is often in there in fairy tales, you know, you have to first spin this room full of straw into gold, you know, there's all that um, uh, impossible tasks and sometimes yeah. making a breakthrough in publishing or writing of any sort feels like a fairy tale task. Uh, yeah. So people can be encouraged, I think, by listening to your story. So I have to say, keep going. Yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, you understand that you've got a current um, project working on the fairy tales of Madame. Now, let me get this right. Madame de Aulnoy, is that how you say her? Uh, Donois, I think, is a pronunciation. Okay. Yes. So that's D apostrophe A U L N O Y. So, mm -hmm. first of all, um, let me ask why do we not have her as a household name like Hans Christian Andersen or the Brothers Grimm? Oh, hear me sigh. I know, really. I mean, I, I, became interested in her after reworking Pinocchio because um, Pinocchio is a story we know the original of. We know who wrote it. It was written by Carlo Collodi in the um, 1800s. And um, we have his, you know, his original. And so much, I mean, Pinocchio is the most reworked of all the fairy tales, I think. And there is so much in that story that people have forgotten or don't know. And I, in my reworking of Pinocchio, I tried to put back in as many of the magical events and things as I possibly could fit in. It's like, who remembers the blue-haired fairy who rescues Pinocchio from the animal tricksters and sends her coachman, who is a poodle wearing velvet breeches, who drives a carriage made of whipped cream and biscuits. You know, that isn't in the Disney movie, is it? You know? No. <laughs> so, and I thought, well, if this has gone missing, wh what else have we lost? What else are children not getting? You know, what else have they been deprived of? And so I started to search around for more fairy tales. And I came across Madame Donoir, and she was one of uh, quite a, a group of women writing fairy stories in the 17th century and having them published and having them translated into English. She had a very successful salon in Paris after a very scandalous life, which in itself is like a fairy tale. And um, her, so she was, yeah, so she was published sort of 1692, 93. There were other women writing and publishing these sort of um, uh, magical tales with a you know a moral imperative in them um, at, you know, at the time, and she was also, also at the same time as Charles Perrault, who you know many people know know about him and associate him with French fairy tales. Now, in about 1720, after she had died, a huge collection of fairy tales was made called the Cabinet des Fées. And 
in that collection, something like 70% of the authors were women. And um, but when you get to the like to the next century, was it the 1830s or something where the Grimm brothers were collecting, their agenda, their 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 brief, if you like, was to collect stories that helped to um solidify a sense of German identity because Germany was like sort of a new country. And I think that, I mean, this is purely my hypothesis, <laughs> but I think that Madame Donoir and many of her contemporaries, her stories were so much, so soaked in French culture that they perhaps didn't fit the bill. So that may be one reason. There's also the fact that she was a woman and you know, would not have been taken seriously. Charles Perrault was a big mover and shaker in the Académie Française, which um, was the sort of, and still is the arbiter of, uh, you know, what is culturally, um, what is high culture and what is not, if you like, or what is, you know, it's it's a, um, it's the judge of those things, and uh, so he was in a position to to have his work to the fore, and of course he was a man, you know, so there may be many reasons really, um, but she she was she was very popular in England for a while, but. Um, I, you know, it's a mystery to me. And I think there must be scholars somewhere. There are a lot, you know, she is known in academic circles. Mm. And I hope there are scholars somewhere who can unravel that mystery because her work, the the imaginative flights and the wonderful creatures that she conjures, many of which were brought from 15th and 16th century Italian tales, which would have been known. And then she's given them her, her own spin. But they are so much stronger and more interesting than anything I have read in Charles Perrault. It, I mean, it, you know, she was just, she was just better. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So have any of her tales survived that people might be aware of? And then we'll talk about the gems that got lost. Yes, I think, um, I think the white cat is still quite well known. And I think... Trent's How does that story go? Well, it's roughly a king does not want to give up his throne. He doesn't want to retire and he has three sons. And so he kind of makes tasks for them to do, to not impossible tasks, he sends them on. And uh, one is they must bring him the most beautiful dog in the world. The one who brings him the most beautiful dog in a year, go away for a year, bring me the most beautiful dog. And whoever brings me that will inherit my uh, my lands and my castles. So he's uh, the, the brothers go out. The two older brothers think that the younger one is, you know, he's not in the running. He's not really very bright. He's not going to make it. And they all go off on their quests. And of course, the youngest brother, he's wandering in the forest and comes across the uh, uh, an incredible jewel encrusted palace where there is wealth beyond anything he's ever seen. Um, and there are... Um, disembodied hands that guide him through the halls and the entire palace is populated by cats and the head of this household is this beautiful white cat and he stays with her her hospitality is marvelous and of course time time has no meaning in this sort of fairyland and he's away for almost a year and they find each other's company charming and the most 
there are lovely scenes of um, feasting and music that are almost trippy and psychedelic. They are so beautiful, you know, plates of food tumbling and spinning and um, oh, it's just 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 marvelous. And everything is is very you know opulent and jewel encrusted. And so he promises he will come back, but he has to go. He's supposed to deliver this this a dog. So he's got to find a dog for his father. And of course, the white cat gives him the tiniest little dog that's inside um, something like a nutshell or something. It's impossibly small, impossibly cute. And so he goes back home. And of course, he's won that challenge. So the, the father sets them two subsequent challenges. And each time he goes back and he stays with the white cat um, and he's sort of falling in love with her, but she's a cat. And the final task is to bring the most beautiful, the beautiful woman back. And he comes back with. Only she's transformed. I'm sorry, we, you cut out there. Thing. Can you go back to she came back with? He came oh, back she, with. So she comes back with him. And of course, um, a her curse is broken and it is revealed that she's the most beautiful princess. Of course. It all ends happily. <laughs> so there's, there's, you know, very familiar tropes in it, but the, it's, it's the, the imagination that she, the, the things that she conjures and the events are, are really quite surreal and quite psychedelic in places. Wonderful. I haven't actually heard that story before. It sounds wonderful. Um, so I'm very excited to find out which ones no longer are anthologized and that you feel need to be, well, presumably what you're doing <laughs> is rediscovering them for us. Yes, I think, I think. I mean, as I say, they're known in academic circles. And uh, quite recently, the wonderful Professor Jack Zipes did translate a few very much for adults. And they were written for adults. They were, you know, court entertainments. Mm. Um, my, I suppose my mission that I set myself is to rework them for child readers. You know, I'm talking about the sort of the six to nine age group mm. in, you know, in today's world. And I can see that, I mean, there are about 24 that I've found. And I think you you on first reading and the only full translations i've found of them are in rather rather um sort of cheaply done editions you know um print on demand things and they are um they they only go back to about 1892 you know they they i don't think there's been a full translation of them mm. since then so we're rather desperately in need of <laughs> someone to do this I think um so where was I about um so you which ones have you picked out for your because obviously oh, there's a lot yes. of them okay oh there out? are a lot of them so some of them are longer like the wanked cat and they um I think they could be reworked either for young adults or for children but I've picked out the ones that I feel um a lot of the the twinkle and the jewels and the aristocracy could be stripped away it's not necessary that the characters are princes and princesses it's not necessary that they're all on that cusp of falling in love you know at 15 mm. or 16 and I've moved them to be ordinary children um you know pre prepubescent children in usually having a a, a hard time 
because I don't I just don't feel that it's necessary to have a lot of that princessy stuff. And what I've hung on to is the wonderful magical creatures and the happenings that that that, that go on. One of my favorites is um I think her name is Bab- Babiole. Babiole, I think she's called. She is cursed to be turned into a monkey because her mother, when she's expecting, accidentally steps on the toe of a fairy and doesn't apologise. And fairies are very vengeful and easily upset. So poor Babiole is turned into a monkey. She's then taken away from her parents because the authorities say you cannot keep a monkey in your house. That monkey must go to the um, to the, the equivalent of the zoo or be sold to a circus or something. So the child is taken away. She's taken away in a box, um, but the person who takes her away thinks he likes the box. He'll keep the box and he throws away the monkey. So Babiole is set loose to try and find her way, her fortune in the world. And along the way, one of the magical objects that she's given by the fairy who helps her is a, a walnut. And at one point she's in the desert and uh, thinks she's going to die and she cracks open the walnut and out of the walnut comes an enormous hot air balloon mm. with a basket shaped walnut a walnut shaped basket underneath and she's you know so she's she's rescued in that way there's um a lot of things coming out of tiny things out of seeds and nutshells you know Huge, like whole orchestras are conjured out of a tiny nutshell. I love that about Donoa, that, that that the way she plays with with space and time are really quite mind bending and wonderful. There's um and also a beautiful tale of a a girl who is is very good at baking and she's kidnapped by a sort of lioness woman, sort of half lion, half woman, taken to this very deep cave, and the lion says. You must bake me fly cakes. I don't want anything but fly cakes. And if you don't, I will eat you. And she thinks, where am I going to, where am I going to get the flies? How am I going to bake the cakes? She's got the flour, she's got the sugar, everything. But she where's she going to get flies down here? And as would happen, she rescues a frog from the beak of a raven who's about to eat the frog. And of course, when animals are helped, they always repay their yes. kindness in fairy tales. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So the frog summons all the other frogs who are trapped in this subterranean place and they roll themselves in the sugar and attract all the flies that she <laughs> needs to make the cake. <laughs> so there's just beautiful little touches like that. And in the same cave, in a, there's a lake with a crocodile in who was once a very wicked king and he's been condemned to live underground as a crocodile until he mends his ways. Whether he does at the end or not, we, we shall see. So I've taken these and I've made them into um, about uh, six stories that would be chapter books for kind of six, six to eight, six to nine year olds, something like, like that. Because I feel that that sort of wacky, um, uh, quirky humour and, and uh, imagination these days fits that age range really well. Yeah, you know, they love that sort of stuff. I think it can be worked up for adults as well. But I feel that in the young adults and the adult reworking of fairy tales, so much has been done. So much has been done, and the the younger age range has been rather neglected, and they're left with a very saccharine offering of 
uh, rainbows and fairies with sequiny wings and that sort of thing. And I feel that children deserve better. You know, they're smarter than that. So just this raises the larger question for me about reworkings of fairy tales. I think yes. we went through a bit of a pinch point where um, our, our understanding of what a fairy tale world was, was mediated through the 19th century um, Red Book of Fairies, Blue Book, you know, those yes. books, yes. The Andrew Lang. Yes. Lang. yes. Yeah. But also very much dependent on Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen. Mm. Um with a, a, I don't know if we call them exactly fairy tales, but Aesop's fables are kind of allowed in as the animal tales. Yes. So that is what the, follow me here, that's what the 20th century picked up for the sort of Disney films. Yes. So we've got things that have become archetypal. We've got Little Red Riding Hood, we've got Little Mermaid, we've got Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty. And these are the things which keep getting reworked, reworked, reworked. I've noticed that recently the sort of DreamWorks, um, Pixar type people are moving into new kinds of stories, mm-hmm. but they're no longer going so Moana or um, Inside Out. You know, they're doing different kinds of stories and, and, yes. and the new fairy tales for our time, I suppose, or adventure tales. Mm-hmm. But I was just wondering if, in fact, that pinch point means that we have as you said, we've missed out a whole kind of sense of imagine, broader sense of imagination from the past that could enrich and re- rejuvenate um, what we think is familiar. Absolutely. That's it. Uh, the, yes, that's it in, in a nutshell. I mean, th- I think it's great that, um, um, you know, animation companies and, and book publishers are um they're looking to other cultures for uh, inspiration and that's that's great because yeah. and there's a whole huge um range of of uh stories that um you know the european if you like the european audience we've, we've missed out on those yeah and actually you know I, I i think you know kids love those i think it should all be in the mix all be in the mix definitely and but slash but i think as you say, we've also missed out on like Disney sort of skimmed the top, if you like. Mm. It skimmed the top of the milk and took a few fairy tale, uh, a few well-known fairy tales and made them into brands, enormous brands. Mm. <laughs> and we 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 need to go back and dig a bit deeper into what we left behind, definitely. Because if I can find and I'm not a scholar, but if I can find Madame Donoir and her contemporaries, and and Madame Donoir, by the way, was the person who gave us the name fairy tales. Comte de Fay was her, you know, her what she gave she gave us that. So if we if you know if I can find those, then you know there there must be many many more. There must be many more, and they're so rich, and we've missed so much, and they were. They were really quite proto-feminist as well, her her stories. That's another point that I think is important. She had a very unhappy marriage. Very, there were a lot of abusive and arranged and forced marriages at the time. And there are very, uh, you know, there are many sort of cruel fathers who marry off daughters in her tales and husbands who are beasts and um idyllic places where there are only women and you know women and and it's all very civilized and no one goes to war and so she was very proto-feminist so we've missed out on all that as well and I can't help thinking if if 
um, you know, when I was a child, when you were a child and our grandparents, if these stories had been part of our canon as much as Red Riding Hood and Sleeping Beauty are, I think we would think differently because we would have a different vocabulary of imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really believe, and it, Jack Zipes said once that perhaps when society changes, we would change the stories we tell. But I think it's the other way around. If we change the stories that we we tell to our children, we will change society. They will change society. And so it's very important to to dig deep and not leave anything behind, either in terms of ideas or in terms of um in just imaginative works, you know, it all needs to be in the in the mix there for for our generation and future generations to draw on and make more of and rework. Yeah, absolutely. So do you see any um let's think about things people already know of all the retellings that have made into film and elsewhere are ones where you think they really hit it well and ones where they did a real swing and a miss oh my goodness that's a huge question you're allowed to um you're allowed to insult a couple of things I'm sure they're big (laughs) enough big enough properties to uh survive (laughs) well I mean it's it's like I wouldn't I suppose I couldn't judge in terms of um in terms of um, you know being accurate for the book, probably you know to, to the book probably or, or to the you know to the tale, um, probably not so many. But there are those that were that were quite true to the spirit of a story, and I suppose I'm thinking about. I mean, would you would you count in that? Would you count something like Hook? as a version of Peter Pan. Would would I be able to count that in? Yeah, I think <laughs> so. That's a more recent tale, but I I think that captured something of the spirit. I quite liked that. And um I mean when you know even though Disney missed out a lot, I do think that some of the things like their version of Pinocchio it did capture the spirit of the boy who needed to change and reform. But there was so much more that could have yeah. been offered. Um, one I think the most, were, the, the most problematic for me uh, in terms of what it didn't actually admit to is The Little Mermaid. Yeah. Because the that's a very grim tale. Yeah. Uh, yes. Sorry, it's not it's not a grim tale. It's by Hans Christian yeah. Anderson. Yes. But, <laughs> exactly. Um, there, the actual there's a warning in that tale because she ends up as the foam of the sea doesn't she oh. uh, yeah. uh sorry people who want her to <laughs> oops <laughs> yeah um it's not a so fairy tales are not they lived happily ever after so this thing in common speech of fairy tale ending actually quite a few fairy tales end in a very macabre way they or, do um sometimes they triumph for that sometimes they don't and yeah. i think that particularly when you add up the elements of The Little Mermaid, the ending that it gets in sort of a Disney version yeah. sort of muffles the questions about giving up all that um, for and, and somebody this is else. Something about, yeah, this is something about protecting children from um, from the harsh side of life, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I, I think. And, um, you know, one of in one of Madame Donoir's um, uh, tales, the... the um, the uh, you know the prince and princess do cannot uh, get together at the end, and they become uh, I think they become birds 
some will become birds and there are others where they become trees together mm. so there are times when if you like you know the the the, the, the love or the happy ending that we would want is not possible but and there's a melancholy there but it's also a way of showing that things don't always work out as we mm. as we perhaps would wish but it's okay sometimes it's okay as long as there's hope because there's some hope at the end yes and, you know sacrifice is kind of that, that's okay too and I think sometimes we we're, we we cushion children a little too much I think um, and they're capable of um, they're capable of such deep thought at such an early age, and, mm. and you know, considering the big questions and thinking about you know death and loss and things like that. And it's quite important that we don't cushion them too much because we compromise their resilience. You know, they do need to, and this is one of the things that tales can do is find gentle ways of helping them build resilience. Well, not just children, also adults. You know, oh, yes. if you know, in romance novels, which is um, a lot of a lot of us read, knowing that it's a a fantasy, yes. um, but it does potentially mean that you have unrealistic expectations of real relationships. Yes, you know. Yes, um, yes So adults also need to have this corrective. That, okay, doesn't always work out, and because that is that is life. So yes. you yes. said you you really enjoyed reworking Pinocchio. That was your oh, favorite. Yes tale to rework I did um, yes. I, I reworked uh the Nutcracker oh wow um for a, a reading scheme like this and I thought that was so I went back to the Hoffman original mm, tale mm, and mm. it's so brilliant it's so spooky of mm. course because we most of us know it from a ballet these days and a ballet works by doing set piece dances and it loses the the sense of menace and also the the time period within it that you get in the original tale and i i thought that the and the um the godfather figure is so malevolent mm-hmm. like he's like that was a bad fairy he's like the yes, yes. or is he? he he sort of he's sitting on this mm. it's where the other is really powerful because he's other yeah so i really enjoyed reworking that because yeah. i'd I'd stopped my knowledge of the Nutcracker as oh, it's a Christmas ballet. Yes, um, but it's far more than that. It's yes. about it's about how do, it's about being believed when we're sticking to your gun, saying I saw this. This is true. A bit like Lucy coming out of Narnia. It has that dilemma in it for the main character. So, um, yes. no, it's a wonderful tale. I really enjoyed it. So, if you're listening to this as a want to be fantasy writer, one of the places to find inspiration is to go further back yes uh, to go further back absolutely yeah. dig yes dig deeply into those um uh, uh uh those 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 the tales that have been forgotten that you will stumble across oh sorry oh that you will stumble <laughs> across accidentally yeah so claire do you think that um rewritings will ever fall out of favor are we are we over fairy tales well, I, I don't think we'll ever be over them, but I think we, we do need, they do need refreshing. And, you know, we really don't need any more versions of Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty um, at the moment. I don't think I'd say it's quite saturated. Um, but I, I don't think, no, I don't think they'll ever fall out of favour because people love magic and um, you know, magical worlds. And if we stop having fairy tales, then... Are we, you know, our imaginations will wither a little, I think, won't they? Mm. People need somewhere to go when they 
um, when they, you know, it's, I hesitate to use the word escapism, but of course it is a bit of escapism. But you come, the truth is, when you escape to fairyland, you come back with something, don't you? You come back yes. with um, some, uh, it might be moral or ethical guidance or some reassurance that all is, you know, all is well in the real world. I, do, I don't think so. I do think that we need to approach them perhaps differently. Um, I I feel that over the centuries, we know that um, fairy tales have been used as sort of moral guidance, sometimes as warnings um, to, you know, to try and influence the, uh, either influence the behaviour of children or to, um, certainly in the case of Madame Donoir, to, um, to be able to satirise a little and laugh at um, some of the um, morals of the time and the inequalities of the time. Mm. And they're used, you know, they're quite um, political with a small p in that way. But they, when you look at the the sort of the the happy ending, the prince and the princess, the the, the sort of very aristocratic or the warrior like qualities of fairy tale characters, the idea that there's a special person or that magic can change things, can alter things. I think we're in a we're we're in a world that's post that now I think we're in a world where we know that power is internal to the human being and that we need to be um you know resilient as we've said and confident and many of the reworkings that I've seen that have kind of claimed to be perhaps feminist or modern or whatever all they've done is they've kind of given the sword to the girl that doesn't change the world that just gives the girl permission to be like the men, you know, to be mm. use violence or whatever. That's um, and that's quite a simplistic sort of way. Or like in the uh, more recent um, Beauty and the Beast, uh, it's lip service, really. I think her father is an inventor, and she wants to be an inventor. And yes. that's that's the token. Wants to be an engineer. Okay, that's it. The token, you know, gesture towards feminism. But I think. When you think about it, those tales, they're based on, a lot of them are based on medieval chivalric codes, aren't they? Mm. And the I ideas of honour and um, wooing princesses and, and, and the, the, the place of, of women. They're still very much based on that. And, the, and we haven't shifted from that. And so it's perhaps time for um, authors to become more people of philosophy I'm sure many you know many many are of course but I think that it's about what do we what sort of world do we want our children to build and to move into and if if we really want to help children and help them to shape the world then we have to think about the stories that we're telling them so we can use all the fairy tale vocabulary we've got we can rework you know what we have bring in from other cultures but underlying that what are the values that we're now promoting if you like and I feel that we need something that is broadly humanitarian and generally secular so that we can include everybody um, and so I think we really need to be thinking quite hard about what am I actually saying is um, a good way to live here and one of the things I've done in my tales um, is that magic does not happen until the inner transformation 
has been undergone by the main character. So, and that's why I love Pinocchio so much because Pinocchio does not become a human boy until he has changed and then the magic happens. So we create our own magic. And I think that is what I'm trying to put across in my retellings. And I feel that that, you know, feel maybe this is a bit egotistical, but I feel that's the way that fairy tales need to go. We need to think about what kind of world do we want to shape? What kind of adults do we want our children to develop into who are going to reshape the world? And we, I hope most of us want a world where there is greater equality, where there is tolerance, where um, there is resilience, where there is no war, where conflict is resolved through dialogue and understanding. And there will always be, you know, the dark forces of evil, there will always be the malevolent fairies, there will always be the pushback against that sort of um, desire. And, uh, you know, so there's lots of scope. You know, they won't all become wishy-washy. There will still be lots of action and lots th- of need for. You know, I think I disagree with you partly there because you okay. said that they need to be secular. I don't agree at all. I think we okay. need to be diverse yes. so that I'd be very excited to read um, a fairy tale coming out of the Islamic world or the Buddhist world or the Hindu world or the Jewish world. I, I don't think it has to be secular because secular is a choice of a yes. certain kind of mindset. And the vast majority of the world, people have a whole range of faiths. Um, And all the Inklings, of course, were Christians and they wrote fairy tales too. So I don't agree there. I think the important thing is, and also I'd I'd be wary about coding in messages. I, I think that children need to have the discussion so they can reject, so they can reject, um, Beauty and the Beast say, hang on a minute, isn't he basically incarcerating a female? Yes, yes. Uh, I think it's quite good to have the discussion around a fairy tale. I think the stuff needs, it's good to be in the fairy tale and then have the discussion. So I think I would be, I would think more about the discussion that follows on rather than the sort of coding in advance. This is great. This is great. I like to um, prompt, you know, debate. And if if you're retelling um, Beauty and the Beast, now you can put some pointers in there where it does feel uncomfortable so somebody can say hang on really um what's going you know what's going on here even at a young age though i find that arrangement unfair and monstrous and i think that's 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 true if children are uh, also equipped with um you know a a critical being you know with a with um uh you, you, you know with the with the um ability and the permission to question things you know you know that that, that yet yeah, you know qu- question what you're reading question what you're seeing i think as long as we're also equipping children with with that skill and that permission if you like or that confidence yeah because i mean there is a movement at the moment i mean particularly as i understand in parts of america to take books out of a library and you yeah. look at the content of what the books are taking out and you think why are you taking that out why don't you just make sure there is a range of books that present another view yes yes um so that that child can say well i didn't agree with that one but i did agree with this one i, yeah. I think this fear that children are somehow going to be um so blank that they don't analyze what they're reading 
is mm. is false. I mean, obviously, very very young children, you have to be. You wouldn't want to terrify them or anything. Yes. Um, but as they get older, I think it's it's unless there is something really outrageous in a book, I think leave it on the shelf and 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 have the discussion. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. And when I say secular, I think I don't mean. Um, you know, devoid of, uh, you know, because you get rid of the Arabian Nights if you say so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, I know. I mean, I was no. I mean, to me, that's that's kind of the 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 tales of different cultures are almost like a whole other wave of things that yes, of course, we must we must have. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with people writing secular tales, like you know the Philip Pullmans of this world. Absolutely, put those in the the firework maker's daughter. Fabulous Philip Pullman story um it's just my 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 plea is that we don't think that we need to tidy everything up and make a lovely little garden safe garden for children to go in I think actually books should be a little bit dangerous should have a bit because that's safer to experience and question some of these things in a book than it is to go and try these things out in real life um Your psychedelic feast sounds great <laughs> to read about, but maybe, <laughs> maybe actually in real life might be a bit dangerous. Anyway, yeah. so um, I know we, I know you said you weren't um, keen on another retelling of Cinderella, but as a final place to go, <laughs> okay. uh, I thought it will happen. Yeah, I thought that we could actually decide where in all the fantasy worlds, in all the retellings um, and hidden versions of Cinderella, is the best place to be Cinderella. And it can be a male Cinderella. What we're picking up here is a rags to riches story where there is some sort of um, wicked stepmothery type figure mm. keeping them down and mm. some sort of miraculous, the shoe moment where they're, yeah. they're, they're recognised. Yes. So where do you think it's, it can be a straightforward Cinderella? But it's, been yeah, yeah. I mean, a fairly straightforward Cinderella. I mean, that, that you know, there is, it's like there isn't a good place to start off being Cinderella, is there? You know, oppression is oppression. I think um, I would want to put her in a fairy tale world where um, if things don't work out with the prince or princess, you know, if it's a, you know, or, or prince and prince or whatever, you know, if things don't work out in this fairy tale marriage, um, she will be okay she will be able to find purpose and uh feel strong and be independent um that's that's where i would put her she has to have other choices i think yeah i there's um just for those of you who are also watching bridgerton there is a cinderella story coming up in benedict bridgerton his love interest is sophie who is a cinderella figure absolutely um so i think in terms of you get to be in the Bridgerton world at the same time as being in a fairy tale world, that's my pick. I think it's called um, an offer from a gentleman. Uh-huh. So it is fairly traditional, but you get a Bridgerton. So what's not not what's not 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 to great like frocks? You get great frocks, <laughs> but it's actually to be fair to Julia Quinn. It's actually a really one of her really interesting ones, though it is very closely wedded to the Cinderella story. But she does allow one of the ugly sisters to escape, you know, the ugly sisters uh, people. Yeah, they they don't have to stay an ugly sister. They can move over to be uh, a salv- salvageable character. So, yeah, that's my pick. An offer from a gentleman, Julia Quinn Bridgerton. <laughs> uh-huh.
Okay. Yes, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see what they do with that one because it's so clearly Cinderella. I've got a feeling Shonda Rhimes and Co will struggle with that one, but we'll see. That's probably the season after next. Um, yeah. Anyway, you get Benedict Bridgerton is already. Yeah, he's already uh, in the season. He's the one who's the artist, so he's already a bit bohemian. So he's being set up to be suitable for marrying a a, a, a servant. <laughs> Who secretly, of course, is aristocratic, going back to your point about, you know, um, fairy tales rather overdoing the nobility thing. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. Um, that was been fun to, to discuss, and I really look forward to re reading some of your retellings. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Julia. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.